Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart Centered Therapist podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Gozanski, and today I am super excited to welcome a guest that I've been wanting to have on the show for a while. I am delighted to introduce you to Jim LaPierre. Jim LaPierre, LCSW CCS, is the owner and director of Higher Ground Services in Brewer, Maine. He is a recovery ally, an LGBTQ plus ally, a mental health therapist, and an addictions counselor. He specializes in supporting survivors who are seeking to transform their lives. Jim is the creator of thebesttherapy.org, which provides home study programs for healers and helpers. He is also the co-founder of SoberNow.com, an online addiction recovery program that is completely free. If you are sitting at your desk right now looking on your computer, Google both of those websites because they are amazing. We're going to talk more about what he offers, but please check those out as we have our conversation. Jim's passions include teaching, clinically supervising, being a therapist to therapists, and writing books about mental health recently published his third book, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome for Helpers and Healers. Welcome, Jim. This is such an exciting conversation we're going to have. Thank you for having me. It really is a pleasure to be here. Yes, pleasure. And a fellow Mainer, so in the house. We're both from Maine on a sunny day. So unusual. It has been a long time coming. Yes, absolutely. Well, I love to start the podcast by asking all my guests, what does being a heart-centered therapist mean to you? Uh, to me, it means being very authentic, very genuine in the work that I do. Uh, it means approaching this work with a certain amount of vulnerability and humility. And the real joy of my career is, I, the way I explain it to other healers is, I don't have a persona that I use for my work. I, I get to be the same guy, whether you uh, meet me in a therapy session or in a grocery store. Now, obviously, I'm a little more private a version of myself when I'm practicing therapy. But after all these years of ongoing healing and growth, to be heart-centered means that I'm comfortable with myself so that I can be comfortable with holding space for others. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I love that that notion of congruence, that you're pretty much the same person you are as a therapist and in the rest of your life. And like this, this whole person, whole therapist, that's, that's always been really key for me. And it's a hard concept to teach. You know, I, I know we both do a lot of supervision and people think they have to be a certain way as a therapist. How do you help them with that? Well, the, I think the first step is acknowledging where did we learn to hide our true selves? What are the lessons of our family of origin? What did past trauma teach us? What did things like being an adult child of an alcoholic or addict teach us? So most of us obviously have very personal reasons for being in the field. 
And because of our upbringing and life experience, we're very good at being chameleons. And so we shift to whatever situation we're in and we shift based on the company that we're keeping. And all of that is undermining to us as healers. It, it doesn't make us feel like we're offering our best stuff. I think it speaks to our expectations of ourselves as healers. I don't want to be an expert. I don't want to be somebody who's supposed to have all the answers. I, I want to be somebody that uh, can hold space and join very authentically. And whenever I'm asked, what is it that's made me successful as a healer? I always say my willingness to muddle, to be completely in the moment with no plan, no idea what happens next, and to work in a very mutual way with my clients to help them find what's going to work best for them. So your best work is when you're able to muddle. I think muddling is everything. I'm not a big believer in following modalities. I, I, I work very much from eclecticism. So there's enormous value in learning modalities. But in most cases, if we're working from a singular approach, the experience is not terribly authentic for the client. I, I think, you know, first, foremost, and always, therapy is about a relationship. And that relationship, I think it's interesting to consider what is it that we expect of ourselves? What is it that we expect of our clients? And how are those things communicated? And that when I'm, especially when I'm doing clinical supervision, one of the challenges that I offer to clinicians is let's examine your expectations of yourself and consider that in most cases, expectations are subconsciously developed and subconsciously maintained. And if you inexplicably had some kind of wonderful upbringing and you know to not go past your limits all the time and you know to not be terribly critical of yourself, then great, your expectations are probably really healthy. But if you're anything like me, you're gonna push limits and you're always going to want to provide your very best stuff. And what you may find is that what it is you expect from yourself is something that you would consider at best unkind to expect of others, uh, even other professionals. Mm, right. So that's how we find so many high achievers as healers, right? Because they they push themselves. I, I we're we're not just high achievers. Uh, I worked with a wonderful old school addictions counselor for a lot of years who uh, would frequently say, we're not really human beings because we don't know how to just be. We're human doers because we take all of our worth from what it is that we achieve and accomplish. And so the idea that I have inherent worth is, well, uh, it took me a lot of therapy as a client to get to a place where I could believe and experience that. Yes. And, and we're going to circle back to that idea of having inherent worth as I'm sure it relates to overcoming imposter syndrome. You you shared so much and it's so rich, Jim. It's great. One thing you said about being more eclectic and, and it's important to learn and embrace approaches, but you don't you don't typically just like adhere to only one in a session. And what I've found is that can sometimes like hijack our brain and, and stops us from being authentic or leading from our heart or being being in that. I love that concept of muddle, right? Where we don't have a plan. What I've learned is that when I have a plan or I have an agenda, what I've unwittingly done is exclude every possibility that isn't part of my plan. 
And one of the things, my contention and my experience is that there's a great deal that mental health practitioners can learn from the field of addiction studies and, and specifically every form of addiction recovery. And so if I was to be said to practice any particular modality, it would absolutely be motivational interviewing. And what I've learned is my willingness to learn from the people that I serve is infinitely greater than any training, any formal education, any structured process. Because when I have a willingness to learn from people who have lived experience, not only am I learning about what works best for them, I'm also collecting stories. I think a vital part of being an effective therapist is being a good storyteller. So I think it's very different to say to my client, here are some tools that you can use, and here are some ideas that you might integrate, as opposed to saying, let me tell you a story about someone I served in the past who I see as being very much like you, and let me enrich the story so that this feels like a person you could relate to, and then I'm going to share with you what worked for them. And ideally, you'll feel a little more inspired or have a little more confidence that that could work for you, as opposed to offering you ideas that are just kind of in a vacuum or out of a textbook. And your willingness to serve is based in learning from the clients. Very much so. It's also based in, if I have a goal at this point in my career, it is to support other healers and helpers in becoming healthier and more self-accepting because that's what yields me the greatest ripple effects, but it's also what renders us the most effective. I, I think had I not made the connection that my ongoing healing and growth is intimately tied to my effectiveness, if not for that connection, honestly, I would have never made half of half the investments that I've made in my own well-being because my life experience, my family of origin, uh, leaves me with the idea that it's just me. And if something is only affecting me or is only about me, then uh, what I learned growing up is that it's not worth investing in. But one of the amazing things to me about healers and helpers is that independent of our life experience, independent of all of our varied perspectives and experiences, we all want to be optimally effective. And so if you can accept the premise that your ongoing growth and healing it results in greater effectiveness to those you serve, then you get to bypass a lot of the shame or the fear that might keep you arrested in your current state and recognize that to optimally serve others requires serving self and it requires allowing ourselves to be served. Anyone listening, really, I hope you can take that in that it, it it's so incumbent upon us to be better as helpers and healers by doing our own growth journey. And that's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. It's going to be tricky. And yet the, the repercussions are huge in terms of effectiveness, benefit, joy, and happiness. Even, you know, there's so many of us therapists out there who are burnt out. Right. And so this is, this is all connected. I have, I have an outline of lots of things I want to talk about, and we're not going to get to all of it, but sometimes you make a point and I just have to jump back there because I'm, I'm so intrigued. And when you said that, um, if I have a plan, then I'm leaving out the possibility or the opportunity for everything 
for everything else that may come in um, and that you adhere to motivational interviewing. And I know there's a spirit of motivational interviewing that's that's so key. And then also there's that sense of incorporating some spirituality into therapy and, and as a way of bringing our authentic selves and, and we have spirits within us into the room. And with a plan, I'm not sure that the spiritual can enter the room. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I joke with my clients all the time that at this point in my journey, I only make plans so that I can listen to the universe laugh. My higher powers plans are always greater than mine. And I can talk to you for days about what I've learned uh, specifically from people in 12-step programs about spirituality. And I favor inclusivity above all. And uh, the idea of a particular religion doesn't necessarily work for me. I'm happy for people that it does work for. But to be spiritual to me is this wonderfully diverse thing that we can't even define what it is. So nobody gets to tell me I'm doing it wrong. But I think spirituality is about relationships and doing something that's sacred, doing something that is intimate. And so I feel connected to something more powerful than myself. And I get to connect with people that like, I wish I was so clever that I went out and found these wonderful clients, that I went out and found these wonderful employees, that I found these wonderful supervisees. But I have enough humility on board to know that that wasn't me. The universe simply connected to me to some amazing people. And so giving the universe people to work through and giving it moments and opportunities to work means that I don't have to put a ton of pressure on myself to always know what comes next. In fact, one of my favorite questions to ask a client is, okay, now what happens? Mm. As kind of a call to action, but as also an opportunity to let them lead. I don't need to be in charge. And I think so much of what I experienced as a new clinician was based in fear. I wanted control of the direction of the session because I wanted to know how things were going to turn out. And I, I it, in retrospect, it's also clear that it's fear-based. And so today, when I teach and when I clinically supervise, one of the very first things that I say to the people I meet is, I hope someone has told you that you're supposed to be afraid because nobody told me that when I was new. And I think that fueled a lot of my imposter syndrome and it fueled the desire for control. Honestly, I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn as healers is how to accept powerlessness and not rail against it. And as simple as that is to understand, I have found it very challenging to live, but also very liberating when I am able to accept it. Right. It's, it's, it's one of those both and concepts. I hope that Maybe people will rewind just a little bit and hear that part that you said, which really gave me chills about, you know, I, I wish I were so clever that I chose my clients and I chose my supervisees and I chose my employees. And, you know, if if you do believe in a higher power, then please let what Jim said resonate for you, because that's that's pretty, pretty awesome. I know myself, I will go into a session that I imagine could be kind of hard, you know, and turn my hands up and, and, you know, know that this is really not going to be completely in my control, if at all. <laughs> and I wouldn't want it to be uh, the very best work that I've done, the very best. One of the amazing things about therapy is as a client is sometimes you hear yourself say things and it's because your guard was down. It was because something unexpected came forth. 
And I don't know that we make room for the possibility that the same thing happens for the practitioner. But I have certainly heard myself say things in a session and thought, well, okay, that wasn't me. That was the universe. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Shout out to the universe. Well, Jim, um, do you want to give like maybe a 30, 60 second kind of overview of like why you became a therapist? And then we'll talk about imposter syndrome. I would love to. To do that most of the minute is a challenge. I've lived a very weird life. I am a therapist today because I was, for all of my 20s, I was a blue collar guy, uh, raising children, scared to death that I would be like my parents. So on top of all of the things, I was very focused on being a great dad and I got to do a lot of volunteerism. A philanthropist that I had never met learned of the work I was doing with children and actually made it possible for me to go to college and then on to grad school. I did my undergrad in three years, my graduate in one, and the next thing I knew I was a therapist. Uh, And the whole reason that I got into the field is progressively I'm trying to be the person who ideally would have helped me as a child, as an adolescent, as a young man, and honestly, even in who I am today. That's remarkable. And somebody had faith and saw you and what you had accomplished and your mission to help children and knew that there was even greater reach. And I get to pay that forward. Uh, Of all the things that I get to do with my clients, with the books that I supervise and employ, the most important thing I do is believe in them. I won't work with someone if if I can't find things about them to believe in. And what's beautiful is seeing that potential and watching it come to fruition uh, is absolutely why I get out of bed in the morning and do what I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and you can hear there's, there's not a separation, right? This is Jim, the therapist, Jim, the supervisor, Jim, the boss, Jim, the human, the father, the husband, all of that. Absolutely. And I'm blessed because I get to work with people that I see as being very much like myself. There's an old joke about how there's only two types of people in the world, us and them. And I am very much one of them. And so we have this idea that you have to find your people or you have to find your tribe. And I tried for decades and nobody told me that my people were in group therapy sessions or in 12-step meetings or in homeless shelters of psych wards. But the folks that I treat are almost exclusively survivors, and the folks that I employ and supervise are all survivors. And so sharing that identity means that there doesn't need to be any separation because we're cut from the same cloth. And and right there, that's the kinship. That's the wounded healer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm not I'm not here because I'm so altruistic that I can't get through a day without helping people. I'm I'm here because I'm effed up and I'm trying to get better and I've been try- working at getting better for a lo- very long time and I get to help other people do the same thing. But I I don't want any point of separation between myself and the people that I serve. Mhm. Yeah, that's great. So, I want to read an excerpt from your book that just talks about imposter syndrome starting, and then let's dive in from there. So um, this is from the Kindle version, so I'm not sure what page, but we'll we'll share some different things and also the link to Jim's book, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome for Helpers and Healers. So you said, imposter syndrome starts long before we enter the field. It's a form of anticipatory anxiety 
I looked ahead and was sure that knowing more would make me more confident. It didn't. So all of the ways that we respond to fear, uh, I was terrified as the, the further I got through grad school, the more I started anticipating doing the work and the more I felt afraid uh, because which is normal and healthy. But of all the ways that I could have dealt with fear, reading more and more books and journal articles was certainly not the way to overcome fear. But the illusion is the more knowledge you have and the more training you have, the more effective you're going to be, as opposed to becoming more comfortable with yourself, attending to your own wounds, and having some conversations with people who have more experience. Like, the best preparation for my becoming a therapist was, was certainly not college. It was my own therapist. And learning from her, here is how you do this, and learning things about myself and becoming more comfortable with myself was infinitely more conducive. Uh, but when you're hyper-focused on the role, first of all, that comes from your family of origin. We, we were assigned right? Somebody's the smart one, somebody's the pretty one, somebody's the hard worker. So the role that I was about to take on was unfortunately pretty codependent in my eyes. Like I was going to go out and save people. I was going to go out and rescue them. And that's insane. I've rescued and saved exactly one person and that's me. <laughs> I help people save themselves. Mm. I help transform their lives. And my belief about imposter syndrome is a, a couple of things. First of all, it's not about the job. And that's typically all we think about is that particular role, that particular set of expectations. It's about your identity. It's about your unhealed wounds. It's about how you relate to yourself. And my experience is that there's usually a big contrast between how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to everybody else. Right. So, I mean, we may think we're saving other people, but they save themselves. We help them to get in touch with themselves. We can only save ourselves. And, and you're saying this imposter syndrome really arises from our identity. Yes. And if your identity is that you're somebody who's going to save and rescue people, I suppose that could be valid if you're a surgeon, if you're a 911 dispatcher, if you're somebody that's constantly facilitating crisis. I would say too often it's self-limiting that that is your identity because you're also a person and you're also somebody's partner or somebody's parent or somebody's a million other things. But we tend to define ourselves and we live in a culture that uh, attaches an enormous amount of meaning to what is it that we do for a living. And so it's, it's kind of like when you meet somebody, they will immediately ask, what do you do? As opposed to asking something like, what do you love? Mm, yes. And well, that's so westernized too. We find that here more than if you were to travel somewhere else, for sure. I, I want I want to also just share for the listener that Jim is is very articulate and, and his book is also very personal and down to earth and funny and humorous. And so um you you get to see both sides. We haven't quite seen the full other side yet in this interview. <laughs> Well, thank you for the kind words. I, I certainly believe in that being down to earth, and I simply see that as part of being authentic and genuine. Uh, I don't have any patience with clinical speak. I don't find value in it. And when we talk about meeting our clients where they're at, that, that also includes speaking their language. So one of the things that I've been like 
very blessed to do is work with people for whom abstract concepts simply don't work in their brain or work with very neurodivergent people and recognize that how I communicate is a big part of how they derive meaning from the work that we're doing together. And so I, I certainly favor using humor in all things. And uh, of all the ways in which I want to do it, the idea that I ought not to take myself too seriously is definitely at the top of that list. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, and that's so important in how we relate to our job and relate to our clients. Um, you know, we might be encouraging them to do that. And yet we hold ourselves to a different standard. Too often the standard is being above reproach. Uh, perfectionism is fairly common amongst healers and helpers. And I see it as a series of survival skills. And so to me, the greatest transformation when I'm working with healers and helpers is I want to identify survival skills that they're still using because the idea is we're going to live. We're not going to just survive. So we can transform those skills because they're all based in intuition. They're based in behaviors that were designed to keep us safe. So first of all, let's acknowledge the ways in which they did not keep us safe. Let's acknowledge uh, that those are all talents and abilities, and then let's transform them into something that gives us greater health and greater quality of life. And then ultimately, the very best healers that I know are those who have transformed those skills into clinical skills. And it's more about allowing uh, your intuition and your sense of things spiritually to guide you as opposed to your intellect or your training. Did you know one in five people will experience a mental health issue this year? Mentalhealththreads.com is your online shop dedicated to promoting mental health awareness and breaking the stigma surrounding mental illness. You can find fun, creative, and inspiring products like t-shirts, hoodies, and more, all with positive messages that remind us to take care of our mental health. Favorites like Perfectly Imperfect, Your Anxiety is Telling You Lies, It's Okay to Not Do It All, and No Risk, No Magic. Plus, we have a special collection just for therapists, like our bestseller, I'm a mom and a therapist, nothing scares me. So come check it out at mentalhealththreads.com. Our mission is to start important conversations about mental health and to remind you that you are not alone. Check out mentalhealththreads.com today. So let's drop that down even a little more concretely. Survival skills were meant to help us survive, but not necessarily live, like live fully. What are some examples of, I mean, you mentioned perfectionism. What are some examples of like survival skills that, that we grabbed onto? The most common ones are really a lot of the symptomology of chronic PTSD. So when you notice that your client is hypervigilant, they're constantly scanning, but they're never coming to a conclusion. So what we're looking for is what is the threat? Where is it coming from? How do I need to react or respond to it? And because that's a constant ongoing process, we never come to the conclusion that, okay, I'm safe, everything's okay. It's just an ongoing process. So if we can modify hypervigilance and tie it to our intuition, then we have a greater sense, a greater set of, of 
skills in observing than the neurotypical person is ever going to have. And we can look at all of the ways in which we react and modify them to ways in which we respond. So a survival skill of simply shutting down emotionally, shutting, uh, detaching from our physical selves. These are not conscious decisions. They're things that we do instantaneously because we've been conditioned to do them. If we can instead embrace mindfulness to the point that we simply notice, here's my reaction, here's my emotional reflex, then we can embrace doing things differently, responding instead of reacting, taking even a couple of deep breaths and asking ourselves very consciously, what is the best thing for me to do in this moment? And and so moving away from those deeply ingrained uh reactions and towards more adaptive responses. The biggest survival skill of all, I think, is having an intuitive sense of who a person is, having the ability to read people, read situations. And for so many of us, the biggest barrier to acting on that intuition is self-doubt, particularly those of us who grew up in families of addiction or families where there was a lot of trauma where children are taught to doubt themselves. The example I usually use is a child as young as four understands that dad has passed out, but is told, no, no, he's just tired. He's just sleeping. And so we invalidate with all good intentions. We invalidate children to the point where they don't trust themselves. And if we can isolate self-doubt, then what I, for example, what I ask those I serve to consider is Catch yourself doubting yourself and then ask yourself, do I truly doubt this or do I just hate how this feels? Uh, Because all of our overthinking and all of our excessive use of intellect is supposed to bring us a greater sense of security and confidence, but it never, ever does. Uh, Your intuition is a thousand times more efficient than your intellect. And uh, finally, the, the experiment that I encourage people to use is the next big decision you have to make Try to separate what you know from your head, what you feel from your heart, what you sense from your gut, and also what is your body telling you. And just note those, write them down, and then spend as much time as you need to analyzing, problem solving, getting inside your head, trying to figure it out. And tell me if you came to a different response, a different conclusion than what your intuition told you initially, because chances are your intuition knows better. So good. So there's an exercise that you can just do right there and test out this theory, right? That that our our intuition is still key and it's our intellect that that takes over and kind of hijacks us and is part of our, what we think should be safe for our survival. And it really isn't. It's really not. And we tend to play to our own strong suits. So typically therapists are very smart people. So it makes sense to me that they want to rely on their intellect. It's easy to recognize these things in a client. We, we spot dissonance pretty quickly. To me, dissonance just means your head and your heart are on different pages. So it's the way I think about it is your heart hijacks your head and says, I need you to find a, a, a softer, gentler truth because the one that you've come up with is not acceptable to me, too painful to me, too scary to me. And your intuition really is not affected by emotion because by its nature, it lent itself to your survival and it can also lend lend itself to you thriving. Right. And, and that's 
that's the transformation right there when you can actually feel like you're thriving. And, you know, as you say about therapists, right, there's also that sense that therapists are good at reading the clients or reading the room, right? That we come from our own wounded places where we've learned to adapt that survival skill, right? Because it was, so many of these survival skills come from that, that protection, right? How do we protect ourselves at all costs? And then we keep doing it, but it's, it's also the cost of not listening to our intuition or not living a life where we can let in joy, let in mistakes and muddling to, to, you know, grow. Absolutely. And struggling to feel like we're deserving of thriving, deserving of joy and love and all of the things that we so readily affirm that our clients deserve. And it's funny to me is too, because therapists are, are usually excessively humble people and, and we're trained and, and taught to give all credit to the client. But one of the things that I'll tease my supervisees about is you will readily affirm and validate every single truth that your client has, except for their opinion of you. Oh, I love so that. That's right. When they try to appreciate you, you immediately say, oh, no. I'm just the facilitator. You're the one doing all the work. Well, okay. But if you're a good facilitator and your client appreciates that about you, uh, maybe you have a responsibility to receive that. It's amazing to me how common it is for us to dismiss compliments, praise, recognition, all of the things that we kill ourselves to earn and then find too uncomfortable to receive. And so when we dismiss those things, uh, it's never our intention, but we're refusing a gift from a person who's being earnest and genuine and, and appreciative. And so I like to draw people's attention to, it's not just about us and it's not our intention to make it that way. But when you come from a place of shame or you feel for whatever reason unworthy, then it may, those are barriers to receive. And, and, and what does that do for the relationship, right? When here the client is trying to give you a compliment and give you feedback and you don't receive it or accept it. It's, it's one of the ways in which we don't realize or think about how we're modeling behavior that we don't want them to embrace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are so many um, really cool things, too, when you do check out Jim's book is he has journal prompts with each or, or every other chapter, and they're really great. And so, you know, we there was... There was, um, I haven't read that much yet, but like the chapter, congratulations on your poker face, which is really good, talks about um, career. And you, you say something, the last thing the world needs is more brilliant and depressed professionals with unsustainable career paths. Time for some journaling, right? And then there's these great prompts, guys. Like, do you feel like you're in a hurry to get there? What is there? What does it look like specifically? Do you have survival skills? Can you imagine ways they could be transformed to improve your quality of life? Do you have any experience really living? I read that and I'm like, wow, what a conversation. So many of us just see that we get like um, trapped in our careers, even as helpers. We're supposed to know how to do all of this self-care and being, being great, you know, parents and spouses and friends. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll pray to like, be a better friend or be a better wife. Cause I know I'm falling short on that. I think the, the difficulty is that really being a healer 
is not simply a career. It is a lifestyle. And for a lot of us, it's just what we do all the time for everybody. The This is so common that we make memes about it. You can't pour from an empty cup. Well, if you're anything like me, you can. What you do is you cut yourself open and you bleed into the cup, and now you have something to offer. And all you have to do is pretend that it's not taking a progressive toll on your well-being. And we're good at pretenders. That's part of a survival skill. Right? We're very good at it. And of all the ways that I've learned this lesson, raising my children through their adolescent years and having employees have been powerful reminders in my life that people don't respond well to hypocrisy. So what I want for the people that I love has to be what I do because my words alone are not going to suffice. My oh. good intentions alone are not going to be enough. I also really geek out if we talk about burnout because my my struggle is that every single thing we talk about in burnout faults the practitioner and says that you as a professional failed to take care of yourself adequately. And it's not true. The simple truth is we work for toxic people and organizations. We work sometimes with people who demand way too much of us. Sometimes the field demands too much of us. And then we go through something extreme like a pandemic and without any playbook or idea about how I'm supposed to navigate this, we just do it because that's what we expect of ourselves. And then at some point uh, we get, or we feel like we got to the other side of it and then we just keep going. So I, I wish that we had a broader sense of what burnout is so that we can look at what, not just what do we expect, but what is expected of us, what is demanded of us. And I think the pandemic was the first time that as therapists, we really started acknowledging, oh my God, I'm going through the same thing that my clients are. Well, okay, but in a very real sense, you always were. Right, yeah. I think we, especially in, in graduate schools and in training, we put the fear of God into people that they should never self-disclose and they should never relate and they should never say something as powerful as me too. They should never love their clients. And I'm telling my students all the time, better love them. Absolutely. I don't know how I would sit and be invited into the most sacred parts of a person's life and, and help facilitate their growth and healing and not come to care about them deeply. Exactly. I think the idea that I should not love my clients is based on some very limiting ideas about how many types of love there are. And it's a, it, it also fails to recognize the client's experience. I always say I have hundreds of kids because they're nobody's kids. So they're mine. Right. And I get to be a dad to a lot. Yeah, that's really beautiful, right? It's, it's, it's tied into service, these, these notions. That was also really powerful for me. And I learned it from a supervisor who said, and this I this was years ago, and I was in like a dual diagnosis residential place doing an internship. And he said, no matter what, make sure you do what you're say, do what you say you're going to do. I don't care if it's a phone call, if it's you know, a check on somebody, if it's you know, making sure you you bring in the groceries, do what you say you're going to do because. That is the respect that most people never received. And it's so important for all of us. I agree completely. It's also an area of contrast because we will readily make commitments to those we serve, to our colleagues and coworkers, to our families and friends. 
but we tend to be loath to make commitments to ourselves, which is exactly why self-care is so hard. Uh, for the first half of my career, it was nothing more than an intention. It, it wasn't something that I actually did. And I relate so powerfully to people in recovery from substance use disorder. And so what I learned is I'm a slow learner with a high pain tolerance, and I'm not likely to change in a substantive way until I am sufficiently sick and tired of being sick and tired. Then and only then do my good intentions become things that I actually do. I think burnout is God awful. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But the biggest mistake that I made about burnout is that every time I experienced it, I would take a week's vacation and I would sleep a lot, maybe eat some good food. And then I would go back and do exactly the same things in exactly the same way to exactly the same standards and be chronically surprised that I kept getting the same result. So when I got sick, and, well, when I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, it was the first time that I meaningfully examined how much how much do I expect for myself in terms of productivity and client hours and those types of things. What are the standards that I'm holding myself to? What is the level of support that I'm seeking and soliciting? Is my lifestyle conducive to being effective in this role? And when I added it all up, what I was trying to do was quite literally impossible. And every time I try to do the impossible, I fail. That's that yeah. circles right back to the imposter syndrome, right? Because if we are in that throes, in the throes of burnout or the, the lack of staying accountable to ourselves, then we're not staying accountable to our own growth, to our own developments where we can start to see that we are worthy of rest or we are worthy of fill in the blank. I was so deeply ashamed of burning out because every every experience that's tied to burnout is radically different than what I expect of myself and who I believe myself to be. So just experiencing compassion fatigue for the first time, I found my thoughts drifting away from the client that I was listening to. And I had this horrible moment where I realized that I don't know what they've said for the past five minutes. And then I had an even more horrible moment where I realized that I didn't care what they had said. And I was so angry with myself and so completely ashamed because that is not at all who I am, not at all what I expect of me. But there's a simple truth that if you constantly surpass your limits and don't ask for what you need, then these are some inevitabilities. But we don't talk about them enough in the field. And so we talk about, we, we really only give lip service to burnout and to what self-care means and what peer supervision can look like and what meaningful support is. And honestly, for most of us, we don't come into the field equipped to have healthy relationships with coworkers and colleagues and those best poised to support us. The example I always use is my wife. She is hands down the most supportive person in my life. But my wife is an accountant. I'm never going to go home and process a trauma narrative with her because it wouldn't be helpful to me and it would be hurtful to her. So I need to be connected to people who do what I do and who can hold space for me, be vulnerable with each other. Because if I can't do that, then I don't know of a way to meaningfully overcome secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. It's another conversation that we need to be having, but it just makes you human if you find yourself walking away from sessions with certain imagery or certain uh, particular phrase or part of the story that your client shared with you. 
we need to have, be able to release that. We need to have a place that we can uh, release these things. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that, that personal side. And, and so along those lines, you say it's really important for therapists to seek therapy with other clinicians who are comfortable serving therapists. And I'm, I'm like, I want to know, what do you think it is that makes somebody comfortable working with a therapist? I'm a big believer in the KISS system, the keep it simple system. So being comfortable with yourself is what makes you comfortable working with other clinicians. If a, if a therapist is not comfortable with themselves and with their work, uh, working with a therapist gets really weird really fast because it turns into this, hey, are you analyzing me, analyzing you, analyzing me? Like, exactly. It gets so meta. This is, that's great. I love it. That's the key right there. If it becomes really weird really fast, try to find somebody else. <laughs> I'm a big believer in interviewing uh, your potential therapist. Uh, go in and have a very candid conversation. Here are, here are the things that I think I need. Are you comfortable with working with these types of, of needs. I love it when people interview me because it cuts right down to the chase and I'm, I'm not a great fit for everybody. I'm extremely direct. I will challenge you and I'll be about as subtle as a freight train going through your living room. And it's totally okay if that's not for you. Um, let's establish that early on. But in order for me to ensure that I'm getting the most out of my personal therapy, I have to know what I need. And that is not what comes naturally to us. What comes naturally is to have a very powerful awareness of what other people want and feel and need. And the, the three hardest questions that I ask my clients, my supervisees, uh, the therapists that I see for therapy are, how are you? Not the automatic answer that you give everybody. I need you to take some measure of introspection and tell me how you actually are. What is it that you want and what is it that you need? And unless the need is towards the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, uh, folks usually struggle to tell me or, or to identify it. And so we have this external focus and we need to have a willingness to take stock of ourselves uh, and not only be vulnerable with ourselves, but be able to express and solicit from others what our needs are. Yeah, right. And if the client gets stuck there, stay with them in that stuck place. Absolutely. Um, so let's shift for a minute and I'd love for you to share about the SoberNow.com community and your work there, because that's just really exciting and important. Thank you. That's another conversation that isn't happening often enough. Over the years, I've been approached by a, a number of professionals who said to me, I need treatment for a substance use disorder, but if I have a diagnosis of substance use disorder, I will lose my job immediately. So folks who work in healthcare, folks who work in law enforcement, first responders, military, a lot of those folks, as soon as they're diagnosed with uh, either an addiction or chronic PTSD or major depressive disorder, their career potentially is sidelined their potential for advancement is oftentimes ended. And so I've had kind of navigated both worlds in being both a therapist and a coach. So I've worked with a lot of folks who I'll just share with you all. I Did they, were, did they meet criteria for alcohol dependence? Sure. 
what was the diagnosis they got? An, an adjustment disorder. And I sleep just fine at night with that. Uh, but what I wanted to do was create resources for people who aren't going to solicit uh, treatment per se, uh, whether it's because of cost or it's because of their career, whatever the reason. It's not. It's it's part of our upper middle class bias in the fields is that sometimes we forget people can't afford treatment, they can't access treatment, whatever the barrier is. Um, so by stigma and shame too. Yes. Absolutely. So what I did was develop two home study programs, uh, their video format. The first program is a 28-day home study for folks who are looking to start or enhance their recovery from substance use disorder. And the second program is for uh, affected others, people like myself who have loved ones in active substance use disorder and how to navigate uh, the incredibly stressful and scary experience of having somebody loved in, in active use. So those approaches are, are fairly unconventional as well, incorporate a lot of music, a lot of journal prompts. And I think the most counterintuitive message that I give, especially to affected others, is please notice that when something like this is happening in your life, there's a really good chance that you put your whole life on hold and you sit on the edge of your seat and you wait for the next year to drop. And the hardest sell that I have when I do any kind of work with affected others is I need you to turn your focus inward. I need you to take really good care of yourself. Uh, the challenge that I offer is I hope and I pray that your loved one becomes willing to get help and, and get better. And how healthy will you be when at last they arrive there? Mm. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah. There's, there's such a helplessness and a freezing that happens for affected others, you know, and, and we could circle back to imposter syndrome, how, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a good enough family member, friends, you know, all of those things. All of which connects us to powerlessness. If I was good enough, then uh, it's a quirky little thing, but if then statements almost always reflect unhealthy expectations of self. And they're a big part of what we catch all call uh, codependency. So if you really loved me, then you would know what I need. No, that's insane. Nobody's a mind reader. Um, so ideally, uh, we're taking stock, we're noticing our needs, and we're acting upon them. But because of our experience, because of our orientation in the work that we do, uh, again, we're externally focused, and we need to turn just a little bit of that inward. Inward, right. This Our whole conversation is about having that inward focus, especially as helpers and healers, because we neglect it far too often. You know? Yes. And we need people who are willing to challenge us and call us out. Uh, whenever anybody remarks about the success of my clinic, I invite them just to look around uh, because it's not subtle. I've surrounded myself with powerful women. Mm -hmm. And I like powerful women because they say things like, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they, they do things like call me out on the commitments that I've made to myself and they ensure that I follow through. So I've, I've come to a place for uh, the past 12 years or so that I literally schedule every commitment that I make to myself because short wow. of putting it in my schedule book, I have proven over and over and over again that I will not do it. That's, uh, that's amazing, Jim. So, so also these these people surrounding you will keep you accountable to the things you've set up for yourself. 
I, I need that. I need that even when everything's going good. I appreciate encouragement and support and reassurance and love. And all of those are really, really important. But what I need most is accountability. Because in the absence of accountability, my track record strongly suggests that left to my own devices long enough, I will do something completely insane. I'll open 10 more clinics. I'll write six more books in a, a weekend. I'll, I'll take on impossible challenges. Um, because there's a part of me that is still trying to show uh, my father how good I am and how he should be proud of me and love me. And that's uh, obviously a, a heartfelt sentiment, but I need people who are going to call me out on my blind spots because there's going to be things that I can't see, don't want to see. There's going to be ways in which I fall short. And chances are the places that I fall short are going to be only the ones that affect me, not the ones that directly affect the people I love and the people I serve. But the simple truth is when I don't take care of me, I have less and less to offer the people I love and the people I serve. We all need to find those, those people who will call us out on our blind spots. That's so important. Do you schedule your the things for you, like in your same planner, or is it someplace different? Same planner. Uh, I literally, uh, let's see, every week now, I, I have scheduled my personal therapy with my therapist, uh, deep tissue massage, craniosacral appointment, acupuncture appointment. And then I have two evenings uh, a week that are blocked off for just things that I love and people that I love spending time with. And unless there's an absolute emergency, uh, nothing's going to impose on that. And then I also have time primarily on the weekends that is devoted to my wife and to our partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very privileged, of course, to do these things. And, and part of it is just the place that I'm at in life. My babies are 33 and 34 now. And so it's not lost on me that, you know, when you're raising a family and doing all of these things, it feels like it's an impossible balancing act that you're never going to master. But just choosing uh, to have respect for your own limits and making what commitments you can based on your time and, and disposable income is everything. And even if the only thing that you're doing is reserving an hour a week to talk to a colleague and have a real conversation about where you're at and doing this work, I think that can make a profound difference in your life. It certainly has mine. Mm, yes, yes. Thank you for that. So, you know, even even if you're busy raising very young kids, Jim's saying there's a way to still put something on your calendar and make it visible so that it's not just you who sees it and, and can help hold you accountable. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Well, I just am so grateful for you to come here and share your experience, your deeply personal experience, your professional experience, your, your wisdom. It's been amazing, Jim. And I really want to acknowledge you for this tremendous work you're doing in the community, in the world of mental health, being an ally in the world of recovery, and then expanding your reach by um, not just your um, mental health work, but also your books, which are going to be linked in our show notes, but they are wonderful. I can't encourage my listeners enough. I'm going to repeat the titles, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome for Healers and Helpers, 
the best therapy, a guide for wounded healers. And then tell everyone again, your websites, please. Uh, Sobernow.com, thebesttherapy.org. And I always want to be a resource. So if I can answer questions or be helpful to you, my secure email is counseling at roadrunner.com. That's great. That's great. Well, I really appreciate the the depth of our conversation today and your genuineness. And it's been great to meet you and we'll have to do it again. I would welcome that anytime. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.